Salutations and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. We're back after a brief hiatus, a little bit of vacation time for both of us. Cash, what's going on, man? Not a whole hell of a lot, but man, uh, it's good to be back. I feel like would we call like would we call this our season premiere? Like if 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 these had seasons, I guess this would be our season premiere. This would be like season five now of Pound the Rock, which is crazy. Too yeah, much. that seems about right. Like last season felt. The last two years just melded together right. into what felt like an 18-month-long season. Right. And it was really nice to come up for air. Didn't entirely feel like a break for me, obviously, because I'm right. <laughs> learning how to take care of an infant. Um, you have some but real was, big responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, it was it was nice to like pour all my attention into that for a while and just not really think about basketball and i've been taking care of some basil plants tomatoes uh hot peppers not quite the same but hey listen man those herbs need a lot of attention i i'm like a master at killing plants so right. anyone who can take good care of a plant an herb a vegetable garden is like really really impressive to me i've just never been able to do it i don't have the instinct what do they call it like the green thumb yeah, or whatever green thumb. yeah i don't have it so Kudos to you for that. Yeah, as an Italian, I think I'm actually born with. I think that's how it works. When you're, <laughs> I think you just you soak it in from your grandfather and father, and end up uh, whether you like it or not, end up with a green thumb. I'm sure you like it. Yeah, I, mean, pretty, I would. It's pretty cool. I would love to be able to like take care of a vegetable garden. Yeah. I just, I, I try. I, I had a cucumber plant this year. That was like my <laughs> one thing. I was like trying to grow a cucumber, and I failed. Yeah, I think the the good thing with uh, me having just like the condo patio, I just have like a couple planters on. It. So I had like a couple tomato plants, a couple hot pepper plants, and a basil plant. It's not like I had a full garden going, but yeah, I got got what I needed out of it. I will say, uh, shout out to everyone, and I, it's honestly like too many people to list in just fan shout outs. We'll get to one fan shout out at the end of the show, but I did want to just uh, give a thanks. A bunch of people reached out on various social media channels asking me when the next PTR episode was. So. People have been missing us. Uh, I've been missing you, Wolfon, and let, let's give the people what they want. Let's let's get rolling here with episode 196 of Pound the Rock. I cannot believe we're coming up on 200 episodes. That is wild. Incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, let's kick off this season premiere by doing a little bit of uh, a look ahead to the coming season. And I think I, I did want to hit on a trade that we missed while we were vacationing. And that was what I thought was a, a very fascinating three-team exchange between the Bulls, Cavs, and Blazers that saw Larry Nance going to Portland, uh, Derek Jones Jr., and I, I believe a lottery-protected Blazers first-round pick. And that pick is lottery-protected until like 2028. <laughs> I, I don't think it'll come to that. I think the Blazers are probably going to make the playoffs this coming season, so it'll convey. But the, there's a protected pick going to the Bulls. Um, along with Derek Jones Jr. And Lowry Markkinen, uh, essentially as part of a sign-and-trade, going to the Cavs in this deal and signing a four-year, $68 million deal. Um, interesting from all sides. Honestly, uh, I, I certainly like it more for some teams than others. But I'll let you kick us off here with your thoughts on that deal and and how or if you think it changes the kind of league landscape at all. I don't think it changes the league landscape much, but look, I I really like it for Chicago and Portland. Kind of love it. I hate it for Cleveland. I think, you know, I'll let you speak for yourself in a couple minutes, but I think we're on the same page there. The Cavs essentially traded Larry Nance and a 2023 second that belonged to Denver to pay Lowry Markkinen about, what, $17 million a year or something in that range for four years. I, I just don't think that's good, like, you know, asset management, talent management, roster construction, especially when, so they'll now be paying the combination of Markkinen, Kevin Love, and Jared Allen this season, about $68 million combined. And they just drafted Evan Mobley, who needs obviously front court minutes. Now I'm a big proponent and you just draft the best player available. You don't worry about positional overlap. You figure the rest out later. So drafting Mobley, kudos to them, but crowding the front court even more after Mobley came in and doing it with a player that I don't think adds anything to this team other than maybe shooting. And even that has come and gone when it comes to marketing. Like, I just don't like this for the Cavs. And it's like, yeah, could they find, you know, something to do with love that gets him out of town? Does moving Nance clear up some front court minutes? Yes. But it's like Nance 
is a good NBA player and getting better. Markkanen is a meh NBA player and not getting better. I, I just don't like this sequence of moves for a team in Cleveland that I think is like kind of on the cusp of building something cool and fun with their young guys. But then, and I've said this before, even before they drafted Mobley, I'm also not like fully convinced yet with their young talent where it could also still to me go haywire and end up in one of those situations where it's like you've rebuilt for a few years for nothing. Uh, so I just don't like it for them. I think, I think it's a bad move. I, from Chicago's perspective, look, if someone had told them, you know, a couple of years ago or when they first, when marketing was first included in the uh, Jimmy Butler deal, if someone had told them, like, you're going to end up eventually trading this guy for a bag of peanut or like, you know, a, a lottery protected first and a future second, it would sound terrible. But for what marketing is right now and what the league knows of him and, you know, the fact that uh, he was an RFA and all that, like, I think the Bulls actually did pretty well to recoup some draft capital that they had honestly probably spent too much of in trying to get Vooch and DeRozan over the last six months. So I think pretty good move for Chicago. For the most part, I've liked what Chicago's new front office has done in the, over the last couple of years. Um, and then from Portland's perspective, you know, uh, turning Derek Jones Jr. and a meh pick into Nance, I think is, is a good move for them, you know, and say whatever you want about their long-term outlook now with all the question marks surrounding Dame, but a good move is a good move. And I think they made a good move here. So for Portland and Chicago's perspective, I either like it or love it. And for the Cavs perspective, I, I absolutely hate it. Do you think like, if you were the bulls, would you prefer to have Derek Jones in that first round pick than just to have Nance? Uh, Cause that, like they could have just made that swap, right? Like they didn't have to rope a third team into the deal. I mean, yeah. the Blazers wind up the beneficiaries there, but it's like the Bulls decided that they preferred to have Jones Jr. in the first I, rather than Nance. And I think that's interesting. Like, I, if I was them, I would have preferred to have Nance. I, who, I prefer Nance. The one thing I wonder is like, A, even again, even though it's a meh pick, I, I do wonder how much the Bulls are just trying to like restock their cupboards maybe when it comes to the draft capital. And also... But why? Like, they've made this decision to kind of right. go all in on the present. And... When we talked about the Bulls after they made that series of offseason moves, I think the one thing that we were kind of harping on was like, they're very thin at the four. Yeah. And they're very thin defensively in general. And like Derek Jones Jr. is a, a good defender uh, who can obviously sop up minutes at the four, but like he's not on the level of Larry Nance, like no. uh, certainly not at the offensive end, right? Like Nance no, is yeah. a great defender, but he, he's also got like an evolving offensive skill set. He can really pass the ball like he's you know an improving shooter like I think if they were looking for a Thad Young replacement it'd be hard to find a better Thad Young facsimile I think than Larry Nance Jr. so yeah he's thought, a much better player than Derek Jones Jr. yes so I thought that was interesting from them I mean I, I do think if you just look at it in a vacuum like they swapped out Markinen, who was an RFA and they could have lost for nothing but they wind up pulling in a first rounder and a guy who I think could be a, a useful part of their rotation in Jones Jr. like that's a good piece of business but then if you include the fact that they could have had Nance instead, I think it looks a little bit worse from their perspective. I think the Blazers are the clear winners of this deal. Um, I, I think Nance fits there really, really well. I mean, he's a great defender, like versatile, smart, excellent hands. And he's on a fantastic contract, two years and $20 million left on it. And, you know, the, the Blazers have sort of like spent the last couple of years trying to get players like this. Like there were all those reports about what they put on the table to try and get Aaron Gordon. They wound up putting, I think, basically that same offer on the table in order to get Robert Covington. And I think Gordon's a better player than Nance, but I think Gordon's a better player than Nance because he does uh, like a, a few more things offensively. And I think those things that Gordon does offensively that Nance can't really do or that he does better... Gordon still doesn't do those things like at a high enough level right. for them to matter to a team with like legit title contending aspirations. And I think if you're just honing in on like the role player dirty work that a team with those aspirations actually needs, I think you could argue that Nance does those things about as well as Gordon does. So, so I think that's a great get for them. Like, you know, he's going to come off the bench, I would assume, because uh, Norm Powell just got five years, 90 million. And that new starting five did perform very well after Powell came over at the trade deadline. But if they want to, like, 
maybe it's Covington moving to the bench or maybe it's just like they stick with that starting five uh, and, and they're just like making an early sub. I do think Nance fits really well with the starters. He could guard, I think, like he could guard three, four, five. Yeah. No problem. Um, well, not five, no problem, depending on like who the opposing right. five is. That's like, why you have Nurk. And, exactly. Like you could roll out lineups where you're a little bit bigger in the front court where you have like Covington, Nance, and Nurkic. Yep. He gives them another small ball five option where, you know, like when they were playing small ball five last year, it was like usually Covington and Mello in the front court, which is a much different situation than going small with Covington and Nance in the front court. Like that's a small ball five unit that can still probably capably defend and like protect the rim a little bit. And I like that lineup versatility for them. I just think it's it's another guy who should be able to improve their defense. I thought Covington was going to be able to do it last year. That didn't happen. Uh, but I do think that Nance is really going to help them on that side of the ball. I mean, he is consistently up there among, like, for big men, like, the best deflection and steals numbers in the league. And, and I just think, like, he can switch. Uh, he can he can protect the rim a bit. You know, even go, going back to what we were saying with, like, the, Co- the Cody Zeller signing, which as unsexy as it was, I think as a marginal move could prove to be really helpful to the Blazers. Like they didn't have a ton of options this off season. And I think with what little they had to work with, they kind of made out like bandits. Yeah. And look, you mentioned you think you thought Covington would really help their defense when they got him last year. Well, if you remember like even getting Covington and Derek Jones last right. summer was like made us and a lot of people believe like, okay, they haven't fixed their defense, but like those are big upgrades. And you know, I, Jones to me was really disappointing on that end last year. Like he took a giant step back. I don't know if it was just maybe, I don't know if it was health related. I don't know if it just never like fit in in Portland, whatever the case may be. I thought he was really disappointing on the defensive end. And I think Nance is an upgrade there. Um, Not just defensively, but yes, defensively too. And so I think their roster makes more sense now than it did before. Like we've spoken ad nauseum. Like everyone knows what I think about the, you know, the move to get Norm and, and the amount they paid him and all that. And I don't like the roster overall if we're talking about like competing for a title, but I think they've built a good team. And I look, if they could ever move one of CJ or Norm in the type of deal that maybe balances the roster even more so, if they could turn one of CJ or Norm into like multiple players who do a little bit of everything, maybe a three and D, like I I think this team could be pretty good. Um Again, I think it all is still going to come down, obviously, to Dame. But I think the shame in it is, is that if they had got what they thought they were going to get out of Covington and Jones, or if they had, say, if this was what they did last year, like if it was Nance with Covington last year instead of Jones in some alternate universe, then I think maybe everything is a little different. And maybe Dame, you know, is is not in the mindset he's in right now, you know, and is in a bit of a different headspace. But I guess the game's the game. But I am I am really interested to see um, what Portland looks like because look, I mean, I don't think Dame's getting moved before the season starts. I would still venture to guess he will get moved at some point in the season, but there really, is, I still think he will get moved at some point, but I do think it's interesting now because look, if they, if the Blazers can get off to a good start and you know, with, uh, Denver being without Murray with the Clippers being without Kawhi, like I don't think the Blazers are going to compete for a title, but can they get off to just like a good enough start while some of these other teams are figuring out their injury riddled rosters and all this to like, maybe, I don't know, not for a whole season, but like, could the Blazers be like the third or fourth seed after a little, like a chunk of the season. And it is something like that enough to then convince Dame, you know what? Like I'm going to stay put for now. Like I'm not going to try to force my way out or is this all kind of fool's gold? And it's like, no, there's still the very, typical Blazers team we know which is like they're in that six to eight and it's just like the same old song and dance the rest of the west doesn't matter and you know I I, I'm looking at the rest of the west and I'm thinking why couldn't this team be a top three seed by the end of the season well then there you go like you look at the injuries that the Nuggets are dealing with that the Clippers are dealing with you know the the uncertainty surrounding the Lakers roster I think it's totally plausible that come end of season the Blazers are hosting a first round playoff series I, I think it's a very slim chance that Dame gets traded this year. Like just with the term left on his contract, uh, the fact that I do think the team around him got better and that like, I think they're going to show it pretty early on and and that's going to sort of assuage some of those concerns. Like I think they'll be fine. So, um, 
Go ahead. Obviously, did you want to use that as a segue to our, uh, or do you have anything else to say about this three-team deal? Well, I mean, you kind of, I think you you sort of laid it out with with your feelings on the Cavs side of things. You know, maybe a charitable reading is like they're just, like they would probably acknowledge that Nance is a better player than Markinen right now, but they're maybe focused less on right now than they are in the future. And I think maybe you could argue that Markinen has the higher upside. I just don't think... Like, how much of that upside has he realistically shown in his first four years in the league? You know, on top of the injury concerns, which apply to Nance as well, by the way. Like, Nance, I don't think, has ever played more than 67 games in a season. So, it's not like he's been a picture of health. He missed half the season last year. But Markinen, on top of just, like, not being able to stay healthy, really hasn't shown a lot of evolution in his game. And it's like, the the appeal of him is he's this seven-footer who can shoot the ball. And this past season was the first season, I think, in which he really did live up to the kind of idea of him as a deadly stretch big, like shot 40% from three on almost six attempts per game. But like he hasn't really filled out his game around that base skill set at all. And like it's he's just a shooter like the, he doesn't really play like a guy who takes advantage of of his size like the, the the him being seven feet doesn't come into play because he doesn't rebound the ball he doesn't effectively defend bigs so like what's the difference between him like being seven feet and him just being like a guy who's six five who can shoot pretty well that did, did i just step into a time machine and are we talking about andrea bargnani <laughs> as you know we did, we did actually we had this conversation off air and we did compare him to Bargnani and it's honestly not a terrible comp which should give Cavs fans some pause and, and I think like you really nailed it where if you know if they had given up Nance and the second round pick to get Markinen as an upside play I, I would have been okay with it but when you add in the fact that they signed Markinen to this four-year $68 million deal as part of the bargain, I think it starts to look a lot worse. I, I just don't, like, you know I'm not a big marketing guy, so I don't yeah. really feel like I need to say a whole lot more about that. I just feel like players like that are kind of a dime a dozen in this day and age. And, like, did they really have to give away, like, one of their best defensive players and, you know, pay, like, $17 million a year to get a guy, like, who can space the floor in the front court and not do much else? Like, I think they could have found a player like that who, you know, maybe didn't approximate marketing's upside, but at least could approximate the type of player he is right now uh, a whole lot easier than they did it in this case. So not a fan of it from Cleveland's perspective, but like to go back to the segue that you wanted to use, because we were talking about Portland, we are going to talk about uh, some over-unders on this episode and our favorite over-under bets for the 2021-22 season, an annual tradition like no other. Uh, Before we did this, I did go back to last year's episode just to see how we did so we can let our listeners know how much confidence they should have in our picks. And turns out they should have a lot. We hit on six out of eight of our over-unders last year. Uh, We had the Jazz over. They were at 41. They wound up with 52 wins. We had the Celtics under 46 and a half. Wow, that in retrospect looks like a crazy line. They wound up with 36 wins. We had the Blazers over 40 and a half. They wound up with 42. The Pelicans under 36. They wound up with 31. Hornets over 24 and a half. They wound up with 33. And the Suns over 38. They wound up with 51. And the ones we missed on were the Mavs, who were at 43. Uh, We took the over. They wound up with 42. So we narrowly missed that one. And then the last one was the Raptors. (laughs) 42 and a half. We took the over... And this was the first time in nine years that the Raptors failed to hit the over. And boy, did they fail to hit the over. They wound up with 27 wins. So I don't, I don't want to make excuses for us, but I'm going to make an excuse for us. So we went six of eight. One of the two was like as close as you can get. And the other one was like, come on. You, you know what I mean? Like the, the Raptors I mean, were not, they were not a good team last year, but yeah. And I don't even want to get into all that because, like, obviously, most people that listen to this podcast know we are Raptors fans. Like, we, we're Toronto guys. We're Raptors. As professional as we are, yes, like the, at our core, we are Raptors fans. And 
So I don't want to make extremely objective Raptors fans. But though. I was going to say we are, and I'm not just saying that. I think anyone who follows us, anyone who listens to the show, knows that we are as objective as a Raptors fan gets. Okay, whether that's saying something or not. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, that last year's Raptors team, like even from a betting perspective, I feel like you just throw everything out the window. It was, as I've said many times on this show and in writing, it was a displaced season from hell in so many ways. They were up to fourth in the East before that COVID outbreak. So I, yeah, I almost look at it as like, I'm not even counting that. And we went six of seven and we almost went to, that's how I'm looking at it. All right, there you go. We went six of seven last year. Um, I will say, I actually found this exercise to be a little bit more difficult this year. Uh, I, I think last year there were some lines that were just like pretty out of whack uh, that led to some, what I felt were easy bets. And this year, I think the lines were all like pretty well set and I don't think there were really any that jumped out to me as like, wow, that's bet your house on the over or the under uh, in this situation. Like it was all, they were all pretty good lines, I think. And and the ones that we used came from Caesars Sportsbook. So we each picked four last year uh, for the sake of expediency. And because I think the lines were all pretty good this year, we're each going to do three uh, of our favorite picks this time around. So I'll let you start us off, Cash, uh, and you can pick up on that segue yeah. where we left off with Portland uh, and tell me why you think they are not going to hit the over on 44 and a half wins. Simply because of the Dame situation. And again, like I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the possibility open. I'm by no means telling anyone to bet their house on this, but uh, I'm leaving the possibility open that they get off to this great start. They take advantage of a banged up West and, and that leads to Dame just staying the season. They hit the over. They do what Portland does. They lose in the first or second round, blah, blah, blah. But I just think that, like, I can say what you will about Dame being different and loyal and all this. I, I'm trying to think of, like, how often do we get a case where a guy has come as close to forcing his way out in the offseason as Dame did without doing it, right? Like, it got to the point where there were reports he wanted out, and then he had to come out and say, well, I never said that. But he also didn't, like, commit himself to Portland, you know, beyond the here and now in any of those statements. It's just, like, how often... Does a situation like this start bubbling in the NBA without it fully bubbling over? Like it's pretty rare it even gets to that point without the star in question getting moved that season. Like it, it's just doesn't happen often. And I know in Dame's case, again, the loyalty factor, the long-term contract, like all that comes into play. But I still, for whatever reason, think he ends up moving at some point this year. And if he's not there the whole season, I don't think the Blazers are winning 45 games. So I saw this as an under, but by far my least confident of the three we're going to pick. But I think it's an interesting discussion to have because it, it just comes down to me. It's like, do you think Dame's there the whole season or not? And if the answer is yes, I think the over is a, is a pretty good bet. And if the answer is no, I think the under is an easy bet. Well, it's interesting. I think, I mean, my feeling about that is... If you're betting based on what would be a seismic event in the NBA, you know, Damian Lillard getting traded, I think you probably should just stay away. Like, I, I, oh, For sure. For sure. Maybe, maybe just don't bet on this one. Because I think if, if he doesn't get traded, I think they're comfortably clearing 44 and a half. Like they were better than that. Like they, they went 40 and 32, uh, 42 and 30, sorry, last year, which is like a 48 win pace. And, and Some I think unsustainable got, clutch numbers, though. Yes, but also I think the team got quite a bit better. And also, I think I said this on last year's episode, but to be clear, like we're not betting people. I'm not necessarily advocating for anyone to go out and place bets on these. I just think we find it to be like a, an interesting intellectual exercise, yes. like a way to kind of measure our expectations for these teams against like what the the general public or the betting public, I guess, is feeling about them. So I'm not saying you should go out and place bets on on any of these over-unders but uh certainly the Portland one I think is one to stay away from given the uncertainty of the Dame situation but like I I would almost feel like that could be like one of my more confident picks would be picking the over for Portland Fair like enough. They, they just patched up like not all their issues obviously but but certainly some of their biggest issues from last year I think their bench is going to be better I think their defense is going to be better uh you know Mello is gone. Cantor is gone. Those were two, you know, of their biggest defensive weak spots last year. And they've essentially replaced those guys with Larry Nance and Cody Zeller, guys who I think are, are going to fit there 
around Damon CJ a whole lot better. So, so yeah, I, I think uh, like I definitely wouldn't bet the under on Portland. Obviously, if if you feel confident that Dame's not going to be there, that would be a safe bet. But I don't, I don't feel confident about that at all. I think the West is wide open, yeah. and like I said earlier, I think they could easily snag a top four seed. Yeah, I'll simply say I also uh, you know don't advocate um, for people to bet on uh, on these picks we're giving them, but I do advocate for people to bet on the score bet. Uh, if it is legal to do so in your state and when it comes to Ontario and or where you are in Canada, which should be rather soon, do bet on the score bet. Responsibly, of course. A perfect opportunity to slide that promo in. Um, okay, oh, and so- uh, the one thing I will add too, in general, because I feel like this is something people kind of like don't always get, but even like the Vegas win totals, they're not so much a projection or Vegas's prediction as much as they are you know, like professional line makers, odds makers, finding a number that they think will have the best chance of ending up with 50% of the bets on the over and 50% of bets on the under. And I think that's something people like lose track a lot of times. They'll be like, well, Vegas picked this, my team to win. It's like, right. no, they, they've they set this line and this win total in a way that they feel will split the betting public so that they end up with equal money on either side. Right. It's It's more... Uh, a projection of betters behavior than it is about like the team's yeah. performance, which is why I think like a lot of time you'll see a Knicks line that is sort of out of whack right. and out of step with where the team is actually at. Because I think the expectation is that a lot of crazy Knicks fans are going to overrate their team. Exactly. Um, but I actually think the, the Knicks line was set quite well in this case. I think it was a 42 and a half, which I think is a perfectly fine yep. line. I, I don't know which side of that I would fall on. I didn't include them. I did have the Nets over 54 and a half and i feel like usually when you kind of get to the upper reaches of these lines the impulse is to stay away uh just because so many things can go wrong in an nba season that betting on any team you know to win more than two-thirds of its games feels super risky but this one actually doesn't feel risky to me and here's why even with all the insanely bad injury luck last year KD missed more than half the season. Their big three shared the court for like 200 minutes. The roster was overhauled midseason. You know, they were figuring out their defensive identity on the fly. They gave a ton of early season minutes to DeAndre Jordan. You know, Steve Nash was a first-year head coach. Even with all of those extenuating circumstances, they played at the equivalent of a 55-win clip. And then they went out and got better this offseason, you know, on top of just the added familiarity that I think is really going to benefit them, you know, having a full offseason with their big three, uh, having Blake Griffin for the full season, another year of development for Nick Claxton, like they also added Patty Mills. I mean, look, we were praising their moves on the margins in our last episode a few weeks back. And since then, they added Paul Millsap and LaMarcus Aldridge. So I'm looking at a team that has more top-end talent by far than any team in the league. And, you know, they're incredibly deep with a lot of smart veterans. They employ probably the best player in the world. And if he's able to play, you know, more than half the season, which he wasn't able to do last year, I just have a really hard time seeing how they don't get to at least 55 this year. Like, I think this is going to be... I think this is going to be the year of the Nets, really. Like I kind of foresee them running roughshod over the rest of the league. Completely agree. And uh, look, man, I was I think we both were praising their supporting cast last year, right? Like how many episodes last season did I go on praising rants about the fact that not, like not enough people were giving their supporting cast credit, giving Steve Nash and his coaching staff credit for uh, what they were able to do around the big three and i if i'm not mistaken i believe the like one of the great stats from last season was that the nets had a winning record in games that multiple of their big three set out like when two or three of their big three set out they had a winning record now i don't remember how many games that was but it was enough of a sample size to be like yo there's something good going on here outside of just the fact that they can out talent you on any given night and i expect that to continue as you mentioned like that support look i think the jeff green loss isn't insignificant, but I do think overall their supporting cast is even better this year. I think the Millsap pickup probably more than covers that anyway. And so, yeah, I think this team's better. They should be healthier just based on average 
luck and health and all that. And, and even if they're not, they probably still hit 55 wins. So yeah, I'm with you, man. I think barring like an absolute catastrophe, I think this team might friggin' cruise to 60 wins, you know? And with even a little bit of good luck on the injury and health side, this could be like a, the type of team that wins 65 plus games. Like they're that good, obviously. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm completely with you on that. All right, who you got next? Next, I have an over on the lower end of the spectrum, and it is Pistons over 26.5. And here's my argument for that. Uh, as we know, the Pistons were terrible last year. They ended up with the number one overall pick. But this was a team, if you prorate last season to 82 games, the Pistons essentially won 23. It would be like 22.8. So 22-23 wins. So give them 23 in an 82-game season. And they did have some, you know, young talent that impressed me last season. I think impressed a lot of people. Um, Jeremy Grant, obviously, the season he had was a, a revelation for a lot of people. But I'm talking about the really young talent, whether it's Sadiq Bay or Killian Hayes, you know, has to get healthy. Isaiah Stewart. There's some young talent there to work with. And then they add, you know, even, regardless of whether you think Cade Cunningham ever hits his ceiling, whatever that is, it's, it's some level of superstar you have to acknowledge that even on like a basic level at his floor, he is a very NBA ready prospect that should be able to come in and contribute right away in ways few rookies are able to do on both ends of the court, to be honest. So I think you add an NBA ready player like that. You add that Canadian trio of, of vets they sign that aren't necessarily game changers, but between Olenek and Corey Joseph and Trey Lyles, they've got some NBA talent there. And then just natural progression from Bay, Hayes and Stewart, Grant just doing what he does add that all together. And really all you need from that group is approximately a three win improvement over last year. And they hit the over. So I'm not saying the Pistons are going to threaten necessarily for a playoff seed or even a play-in seed or anything like that. But do I think if they're healthy, this team should improve by about three wins and could they go 27 and 55, 28 and 54, 29 and 53? Absolutely. And that's literally all you need them to do to hit the over. Yeah, they also really underperformed their point differential last year. Like they actually, despite losing a ton of games, they played in a lot of close games and played yep. good teams pretty tough. Uh, they had the point differential of a 26 and 46 team. So not as bad as their record would suggest. I really like the Olenek pickup. I, I like how he fits next to Cade as a guy who can kind of space the floor for him and give him room to probe and attack. And yeah, I think I could definitely see them clearing 26 and a half. I don't know how confident I feel in that just because like, I, I think the East is pretty good and I don't know how many teams in the East are like going to be worse than the Pistons, but just on paper, like they look to me like a team that's better than 26 and a half win team. So I support that pick. I'm going to go with another Eastern conference team and another over the heater at 46 and a half. And you know, here I am resident heat doubter look who's becoming a heat culture guy um i'm not becoming a heat culture guy but i am a kyle lowry guy and I, look the heat played at a 46 win clip last year they overshot their point differential by quite a bit all told they outscored opponents by a grand total of two points so basically they played uh like a 500 team but i really think lowry addresses a lot of their issues you know, as a guy who I've mentioned in the past is like, hey, he can shoot the ball and he can defend. And the Heat have shockingly few players who can do both of those things. I think he's a guy who can introduce like a little bit more defense bending pick and roll craft into their offense, which I think, you know, for all the ingenuity of Eric Spolstra's motion offense, like they just needed a lot at times. He ups their playmaking. He ups their shooting like I, I just think he fills so many holes for them that it's going to make a real big difference and you know on top of that I think Bam like despite a really disappointing playoff showing he's an incredible young player and maybe the best switching big man in the league who is still on the upswing so I just expect him to keep getting better I think Hero is going to be better than he was last year in what was obviously a really disappointing season for him um, and I think Oladipo in a situation where he won't be relied upon to do too much can have a bounce back year and, and sneakily be a, a big contributor in a scaled down role. 
Um, you know, PJ Tucker, I think fits in with their defensive scheme really well. Um, I, I do think, you know, in spite of that, like the power forward spot is still a significant weakness for them, especially on the offensive side of the ball. It's like they have PJ and Markeith Morris, like that's not a position of strength, but I don't know if you're going to have a significant weakness, like offense at the power forward spot is not the worst one that you can have, especially when they at least have two guys who can shoot the three ball like reasonably well. So yeah, I just think it's a much better built team than it was. And despite some of the age and injury concerns with two of their top three guys, I think they should be able to clear 46 and a half pretty comfortably. Yeah, if this if this team doesn't go at least 47 and 35, something has probably gone terribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, which is possible. Like, of course. Given like the, you know, the miles on Jimmy Butler, yeah. like Lowry being, I think what he entering his age 36 yeah. season as, you know, a six foot tall point guard. So it's not out of the question that like something catastrophic could happen, whether it's like catastrophic injury or catastrophic decline. Right. But I feel pretty confident. In, in that that nucleus, like that three-man nucleus is really, really strong. And I think the supporting cast was definitely good enough to propel them past, you know, 47. Yeah, and Eric Spolstra usually milks every, and at the very least in the regular season, usually milks every ounce out of his team uh, as humanly possible. So yeah, I, I, like I said, I think if this team doesn't go at least 47 and 35, something went wrong and, you know, you can't place a bet or an over-under on, the assumption something's going to go terribly wrong. So I think uh, so far we're in agreement on everything but the Blazers, which was, again, conducive on Dame not being there. Uh, so I guess I'll finish us off. And look, if this doesn't work out, give me a red squeaky nose. Hand me the size 25 red shoes that I put on a couple times in the last few months uh, for various takes I've had. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But here we go. Drum roll, please. The over on the Raptors <laughs> at 35 and a half. Look, I know we we mentioned that this was one of our wrong ones last year. Again, as I said, I think that had more to do with this displaced season from hell, the COVID outbreak, all this stuff. On the surface, you can look at it as like, look, this was one of the six or seven worst teams in the league last year. And then they lost Kyle Lowry. So how they, but instead of looking at like, how are they going to make it up? You can look at it as just like, look, if if their core is healthy, okay, they're not going to contend this year, but if Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi are healthy, I think they're a, you know, while the, the top end, the ceiling isn't as high without Lowry there, I do think they have a little more depth than last year. I think the, the front court, while not blowing anyone away, comes into the season in better shape than it ended up being last year with Aaron Baines and Alex Len at the start of the year. So I just think they're a little more solid and I think the defense has a chance to be absolutely elite with Scotty Barnes joining the fold with OG Ananobi, who we both think is probably the best one-on-one defender on the planet. Uh, you know, the Siakam shoulder surgery, like the recovery from that, I think will obviously be a big determining factor in what this Raptors team is, you know, whether they're the type of team that could maybe actually make some noise and climb the East and be a competitive team in the first round of the playoffs, or whether they are the type of team that's just like scratching and clawing to get in the play-in. But I think either way, even on their lower end, I think that's what they are. They're a team scratching and clawing for the play-in. I think if they're healthy and they're back in Toronto now, like I don't think expecting this team to go at least 36 and 46 is drinking the Kool-Aid on them. I think that's actually just underpegging them slightly. And I think an average result for this team with average health is probably around 500. And so I think, I think again, I think things would actually have to go pretty wrong for this team to, you know, lose at least 47 games based on the way it's constructed. Now, the one thing I will say is if something does go really wrong early in the season for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, Siakam takes a long time to recover or just doesn't look good when he does, if, you know, the, the learning curve for Barnes is huge and and they don't have the depth we thought for whatever reason. If something just goes really wrong early in the season and they do get off to another bad start, then I'd say all bets are off because then I do think this front office will see a path to another high pick and might take it, you know, however that may come. Uh, but barring that, this team should win at least 36 games in my opinion. Yeah, no, I would think so. You know, the the kind of lack of shot creation 
does still concern me with Lowry going out the door and them not really replacing him with, I mean, there was obviously not going to be any replacing Lowry, but like the like half court offense will be nauseating at times. Yes. And look, maybe, you know, OG and Obi took some strides to that effect last year. I think Siakam has certainly shown that he can do that in spots and he's still growing his own pick and roll game on, on either end of the pick and roll, honestly. And like, he can create a little bit, he can make plays out of the post. They can run their offense through him at times. And Fred Van Vliet, you know, I don't think he is a primary initiator, but he's turned himself into a dynamite pull-up shooter. And so even if he's not like a high-level creator for others, he can still create for himself to a reasonable degree. Obviously, like that is almost exclusively three-point shots, right? Like he, he is not a good at-rim finisher. He doesn't have a whole lot of in-between to his game. So, look, I think, you know, the offense can be just good enough. I'll be interested to see, like, what happens with the defense because I expected the defense to be top five in the league last year and it was middle of the pack. Are they going to be able to raise it back up to that top five level that we saw two years ago when, you know, they were excellent, but also, you know, they they had some pretty fortuitous opponent shooting luck. Like, they had the lowest opponent three-point shooting percentage in the league. They surrendered a ton of corner threes both two years ago and last year and regression hit them hard in that regard. And you know how much of that had to do with their personnel changing, like them not having the backline anchor, you know, like Marcus all or even Serge Ibaka to sort of help make that hyper aggressive scheme work and how much of it was just like, you know, they were already sort of playing with fire with the number of corner threes they were giving up and they started to get burned. I think that's something that we'll sort of have to see. I still think their center depth is, you know, suboptimal. Like 100%. having Ken Birch as your starting center is not great. It's better uh, than Aaron Baines, though. Yeah, it is. And like they have some small ball five options that I'm sure we'll see a lot of. But I'm interested to see like what, you know, what does the defensive scheme look like? Are they are they sticking with this hyper aggressive approach where they're putting themselves in rotation constantly and trusting themselves? you know, to kind of help the helper and to close out and to make pinpoint rotations. Cause that's asking a lot, especially for a team that's now, you know, quite a bit younger than the Raptors teams, maybe that we've watched in the past, the bottom could fall out. Yep. Um, but I do think that, you know, the defensive potential is massive. I think Van Vliet is like one of the best guard defenders in the league, maybe the single best screen navigator in the league. Um, and as far as guys who can close space, who can cover just a ton of court. You know, you can't do much better than Pascal Siakam. Yeah. And then as far as one-on-one guys, I don't know that there's a single player in the league that I would take over OG Ananobi. So as a defensive three-man nucleus, uh, that's about as good as it gets right there. So they should be better defensively than they were last year when I think they finished 16th in the NBA. And I think that might depend on Nick Nurse's willingness to like adjust his scheme a little bit and recognize that maybe like a slightly more conventional approach might actually play better to the team's strengths. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Who's your last one? This one hurts oh, because this is a baby. team that I'm, re- I'm really fond of. You know, I was sort of, I, I was high on them all last year. I loved watching them play. I consistently picked them, you know, to, to grab that last West playoff spot. And then I stuck to my guns and picked them to beat the Warriors in the play-in game. And felt great when I was proven correct. But the Memphis Grizzlies at 40.5, I really like the under here. And a few reasons for that. Like one, I just, I think they got worse. Like I do not yeah. like their offseason. I think they're really going to miss Valanchunas, especially at the offensive end. Like we can have a conversation about like, who's a better defender between him and Steven Adams. Like I think Adams is more versatile. The Grizzlies won't have to like exclusively play drop with Adams on the floor. Like I think it'll just kind of necessitate a bit of a scheme change because Adams 
isn't like he's huge. So you'd think he's like a solid rim protector, but he's really not like opponents shot something like 70% at the rim uh, with him in the vicinity last year. Whereas Valanciunas is like consistently in like the low fifties, like sneakily one of the better rim protectors in the league. And so I think we'll probably see less drop from the Grizzlies this year. We might see like just a, a lot more Jaron Jackson at the five as well, which sounds really nice in theory, but has never really played out that way defensively. Like they, they've been quite poor defensively with Jackson at the five. Uh, they haven't rebounded the ball. Well, they haven't protected the rim. Well, like he hasn't proven that he can be that guy. So I think they're going to miss Valanciunas a lot. And you know, it's also like the teams behind the Grizzlies last year, I think namely like the Kings, Pelicans and Timberwolves, I think they got better. And I think Memphis got worse. Like Memphis is basically relying solely on internal development to take a step forward. And that can happen because like they have a lot of good young players like John Morant could be special. Jaron Jackson still, it feels like is only scratching the surface of his potential. You know, a big D'Anthony Melton guy like Desmond Bain had a great rookie season. Brandon Clark is interesting. There's a lot of guys who could pop. And this team could be a lot better than I expect, but I'm looking at them right now. And like to clear 40 and a half, they got to be a 500 team. And I think they're going to be worse than that this year. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Uh, I think it's like tempting to just place your faith in jaw and, and smash the over after the Grizzlies like have hit the over in each of his first two seasons. And they broke through and made the playoffs last year, as you mentioned, but I, I think on paper at the very least, they took a step back this summer and, and maybe have, even more of a long-term vision than they had even already. And uh, I'm not saying that like they're they're not trying to win this year, but I definitely think there's been a slight refocusing there where they don't, at least the way they're constructed going into this year, they don't seem as ready to win as even they did last year, you know, when they were already a young team. And then, yeah. like, I don't know how much I buy into it, but there were those kind of trade rumors regarding Kyle Anderson and Dylan Brooks, which I, I don't really understand, but if they are true, again, might be another indication that this, like the present isn't uh, top of mind for them. And you add all that up, you know, in a Western conference that while we did say it's wide open, is still the Western, like it is still a bloodbath at the end of the day when you're talking about trying to win games and, and win a lot yeah. of games. So you add all that up and it's like, I think there'll be an under 500 team and that's all you need them to do to hit the under. Yeah, like I think a lot of this is by design, right? I think they looked at their situation and were like, yeah, like we could compete for a low playoff spot in a first round exit again, or we can refocus our window a bit. And that clearly seemed to be their intent, right? Valentinos was on an expiring contract. So in moving him, they move up seven spots in the draft, take Zaire Williams, a guy they were clearly super high on. I mean, reports were they wanted Josh Giddy. They weren't able to move up high enough to get him. So maybe that reads as like a disappointment all told, but like, I don't think it's the worst idea in the world for them to like take a longer view here, but I, I think it means that they're going to be worse this coming season yeah. than they were last year. Yeah. And, you know, even apart from like the over under, I just, from an asset management perspective, I just kind of like scratch my head at some of the moves that they made. And I think it was disapp- like they had this opportunity to, you know, carve out a bunch of cap space. And I know like spending cap space hasn't worked out very well for Memphis in the past. And I don't know what kind of options would have been available to them. And maybe it would have worked out poorly for them this time around also. But uh, essentially by declining Justice Winslow's option, which they wound up doing, they could have carved out like over $20 million in cap space. And instead they used that space to absorb Steven Adams and Eric Bledsoe. And then, you know, flip Bledsoe into... <laughs> They flip Bledsoe into Beverly and they flip Beverly into Wancho yeah. and Jarrett Culver. And then they flip Wancho into Chris Dunn. <laughs> like it was a, a like a ridiculously long series of transactions that basically wound up with them having Culver, who like I, I'm not ready to call him a bust yet, but like he has got to show something pretty yeah. soon. Like he has been massively disappointing as an yeah. NBA player so far. He's got that you Minnesota know, stink on him. Not to disparage the great state of Minnesota or the cities of uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. but No, but definitely to disparage the Timberwolves yes, organization. I should have said he's got that Timberwolves stink on him. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a whole lot of moves to basically end up with what looks like a worse roster than they had last year. Yeah, they, they should be a losing team. Can I, I'm going to hit you with a few just honorable mentions and then you want to maybe just like pick one of them that you think is the most interesting? 
Yes. Before we move on to the final uh, segment of the show. Mm-hmm. All right. Bucks over 53 and a half. Jazz um, over 51 and a half. Spurs under 29 and a half. Mm-hmm. And if Shea is uh, plays the whole season, Thunder over 22 and a half. Uh, yeah, I would take the Thunder over 22 and a half without a second thought if I didn't think there was a good chance that the Thunder would engage in yet more self-sabotage. <laughs> like, you just don't know. So yeah. I wouldn't feel comfortable placing a bet on that team. Um, Bucks over 53 and a half. I, I don't love that just because, you know, they're they're coming off a long season. So it's going to be a short turnaround for them. I think they proved to themselves last year that de-emphasizing the regular season or at least using the regular season, you know, to experiment and just essentially brace themselves for a bunch of different playoff scenarios was the right approach. They didn't have nearly as good a regular season last year as they did the the previous two years and they went and won the championship. So I think they might learn from that and realize that, yeah, like, you know, we're not going to go all out to win 60 plus games. uh, And that might lead to them coming in under that 53 and a half. So I said, you jazz the Spurs. 51 and a half over and Spurs 29 and a half under. Love the Jazz over. Yeah. That's just a great regular season team. Yeah. Like, I, if I had to pick a team I think is going to finish number one in the West, I think it's them. The Suns, I guess, could challenge for it. Like, the Lakers could challenge for it. But I think as far as just like a, a cohesive team that knows exactly who they are, that knows how to win regular season games, I think the Jazz could cruise through the regular season yeah. and blow past 51 and a half. So I think that would be a great bet. Spurs under is always tough just because it's the Spurs. They always sort of find a way, I feel like, to overperform. Like the, the, the Spurs team, I don't think is very good. They're bad. Yeah. I think that's actually under 29 and a half is pretty likely. Like who's the Spurs best player, I guess, is maybe a good question to ask. Probably. Eric White, DeJounte Murray. Like I'd say it's probably Murray. Yeah, and if Dejounte Murray, if if the conversation is which one of Dejounte Murray or Derek White is your best player, I don't care how many or how much you buy into the whole Spurs culture thing. Like at some point, talent is talent, and a lack of talent is a lack. And look, we've seen it the last couple of years. Like, yeah, you know they they remained more competitive maybe than a lot of people gave them credit for. But like, no disrespect to Demar Derozan who had a great couple of seasons in San Antonio and honestly played like the most efficient ball of his career. We both love Demar, but they went they went from like nearly a quarter century consecutively of having one of actually not even a quarter century. What am I saying? They went from like thirty five years with just one year, you know, when David Robinson was hurt, but three and a half decades where they went pretty much every year with at least one of David Robinson, Tim Duncan, or Kawhi Leonard, like true first ballot Hall of Fame, like best player on a championship team type players. And the first couple of years that they no longer had one of those guys, they fell out of contention pretty quickly and have fallen out of even being a playoff team now the last couple of years. So as much as we want to credit Spurs and everything they've done, you know, for the majority of our lifetimes, and as great as Popovich is, obviously, no one's taken away from that. At the end of the day, like talent is still talent. And this team has fallen off in the last couple of years. And now they have even less talent than that. So I just don't really think there's any like Spurs level juju to point to, to be like, oh, they'll, they'll overperform again. I think they're a pretty bad team. I think they could be the worst team in the West if things break a certain way. And, uh, you know, like 29 and 53 or worse, I don't really think is, uh, is an undershot on this team. Yeah. So this just actually made me think of something, uh, which is I'm racking my brain right now and I have, Basically one team in mind, but I'll see what you think. Okay. So let's take for granted that DeJounte Murray is the best player on the Spurs. All right. Is there a team in the league with a worse best player? A team in the league with a worse best player? I can think of one. Okay. Give me me like 15 seconds here to kind of like (laughs) think about this. Um, Man. There's a team in the East that's going to be absolutely horrendous. Orlando? Yes. Yeah. Who's the best player on Orlando? Man. <laughs> Wendell Carter? Fuck. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> but, okay, but that's my point. Is it Jalen Suggs? That's my point, though, is if, like, that's what we're comparing the Spurs roster, like, you know, their top-end talent to, and it's like, at some point, you can't you can't just count on, like, some magic they created when they had Hall of Fame level players 
to just like appear because they're the Spurs. Like, no, man, this, I think I said this off air to you a couple of days ago. Like this team's trash on paper. They, they should be very bad. Honestly, if they win 30 plus games, give Popovich coach of the year. They go 31 and 51. Give Popovich coach of the year and throw a parade for the guy because they, this team should win, lose at least 53 games and hit the under. Yeah. Uh, I think in the course of that conversation, I definitely talked myself into that Spurs under, um, Okay, why don't we leave that there? Okay. Do we need to talk about Ben Simmons? Have we not talked about this I, enough? I don't, honestly, I don't think there's really much left to say. Like, n- nothing has changed really since our last pod. When I, it was the, our, our last episode or two episodes ago, we spent a great deal of time on him. Nothing's really changed other than the fact that, like, the betting favorites in terms of teams to land him now, I believe, are Portland, Minnesota, and Sacramento. That might be a slight change from last time, but. It is what it is. The only the only thing I'd add, and I mentioned this to you in the weeks we were off, is that with all apologies to Paul George, I can't believe I never saw it so clearly before that Ben Simmons is actually the real Tin Man of the NBA. I'm glad we got that established. Yeah, um, yeah. I just think look, all of this felt pretty predictable from really the moment that Embiid and and Doc Rivers threw him under the bus after that Game Seven loss to Atlanta. Rightfully few- so, man. I don't know, like. Not rightfully so. They shouldn't have done that. And Bede shouldn't have said that. Even if it was true, it didn't accomplish anything. And it probably contributed to them being in the situation they're in now. Where, you know, at the least, maybe if Simmons didn't feel like he'd been scapegoated by the entire organization for the team's failures, justified or not, they potentially could have brought him into camp this year, tried to rehabilitate his trade value. And like, that's off the table now. So, like, I, I remember saying on this pod a few weeks back that this was how I thought it was going to go with Maury having to face the realities of the trade market for Simmons and either having to significantly lower his asking price or risk going into training camp with a toxic situation on his hands. Uh, and here we are. So why don't we just put a bow on the Simmons situation until something actually happens with yeah. him? Quickly, what do you think is going to happen. How do you think this plays out? Where does he end up? Does he start the season with the Sixers? Where's this all going? I think there's going to be one of those situations where training camp starts and he's still on the Sixers, but isn't there. And everyone says what they need to say about, you know, trying to incorporate him in the team and have like, blah, blah, blah. And then like at some point between when training camps open and when the regular season begins, a trade will happen. So I'm saying it happens sometime in October before the season starts. I think he goes west. And I'm going to say, I think he ends up, I think it might be Minnesota, man. I was going to say like the exact a, same a little thing. bit of me thinks that the Kings, but I don't, I really hope for, like, I don't think the Kings should trade Darren Fox for Ben Simmons. And like, I don't think they will, but then I don't know the Kings are the Kings. Like, maybe they do. Maybe the, the no, idea no, 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 no. of Ben Simmons. But, but yeah, exactly. I don't think they will. So, you know, I, I don't. The Blazers aren't giving up on Dame right now. After everything we said about their potential this season, um, I don't think the Kings are giving up Darren Fox. I don't think anyone else is coming up with a Godfather offer, given how backed against the wall they know the Sixers are. And I think when you kind of like look at a team that's maybe like desperate just for something to get better, like whatever the case is, I think I think Minnesota checks a lot of boxes. They definitely have a lot of young talent, so I, I think that's where it ends up happening. And I, I don't necessarily know what that package is but if i just absolutely had to pick a team right now where he ends up i'm gonna go with minnesota and i'm gonna say it happens sometime in october between when camps open and when the season begins yeah that feels about right look the kings should not and will not trade De'Aaron fox for ben simmons i feel pretty confident in saying that it is surprising to me and who knows like what's a smokescreen and what isn't but like the latest reporting about the Kings is that they're not willing to put Halliburton on the table for Simmons. That's a little strange. And, and I, I love think Halliburton. That's, I think that's a mistake. Like yeah. Halliburton's a good player. He had a really good rookie year. He has established a very high floor already. I'm not a huge believer in his ceiling necessarily. And I think it would just be a very worthwhile swing for them to go out and get Simmons. I- I've said it before. I think... He fits really well with Fox. Like those two could make absolute magic in transition. And I think actually they could work pretty well together in the half court because Fox is a pretty dynamic on-ball guard. And working with Simmons is more of like a, you know, an off-ball guy, a cutter, a screen and dive guy, 
I think could work out quite well. And Simmons obviously brings the defensive toughness and versatility that the Kings desperately need. Like that reads like a great fit to me. And so whether they're being truthful or not, when they sort of leak these reports that they're not willing to put Halliburton on the table for Simmons, like I think they should be willing to do it. Minnesota to me still seems like the most likely landing spot with like some package of, of D'Lo, Malik Beasley, something like that going back to Philly, which is, it's probably going to wind up being like a, a return that is disappointing to Philadelphia fans. But again, like I just don't like they don't have a ton of options here. Like they're trying to move a guy at the low point of his value and him demanding a trade. Like before it was like, okay, we should probably try and trade this guy. And now it's like, he's saying he's not going to report. They were already kind of desperate and negotiating from a position of weakness. And now like they're really under the gun. And so I think unless they're really willing to, to draw this thing out and get super uncomfortable, they're going to probably have to make a trade that they're unhappy with. I, I like the idea of Minnesota just collecting all of the talent that Jimmy Butler deems <laughs> to not have enough of a competitive, whose competitive spirit nauseates him, combining Towns and Simmons, which I actually think in terms of like a fire nice offense defense combo, is actually a really nice place to start for a franchise. But That's a wicked I, fit. It is. It is. It, I actually love it. But uh, I, I would find that just kind of funny. And also then when you include the history between Kyle Lowry and Ben Simmons, if, if the Timberwolves get Ben Simmons, the most randomly must-watch game of the year would be Miami-Minnesota. Seriously, like for the dumbest of reasons, but for reasons that would very much intrigue me, give me Miami-Minnesota and just... Uh, Butler and Lowry against Towns and Simmons would be friggin' hilarious. Well, now I hope it happens just for just yeah. for that, just to watch a, a random, yeah, regular season Wolves Heat game with so much intensity, just glued to the screen. Yeah, but I I think look, Simmons makes a lot of sense for Minnesota from a fit perspective, from a timeline perspective. Like his age and his contract line up quite nicely with Towns's. And then I think you've got quite an interesting uh, nucleus there with with Town Simmons and Anthony Edwards. And then it really feels like you're building something where yeah. it just hasn't felt that way in Minnesota for a long, long time. Um, and, I, I, you know, you know how I feel about D'Angelo Russell. Like, I would not have any second thought yeah. about getting off of his deal. I think from Philly's perspective, that's when I would think, like, okay, is, is Russell really the guy you know, the, the kind of shock creator that we want to bring in to solve our problems, I would think probably not. Just because, for a number of reasons that I don't need to get into now. But I, I basically, I don't think he's actually a good enough shock creator to uh, offset the massive defensive limitations that he would be bringing to Philadelphia, um, a team that's prided itself on its defense for a long time now. So um, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, it's It's gotten messy. It's probably going to get messier. And... I think that we can put this issue to rest and not talk about it again until a trade actually gets consummated. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm with that. Um, okay, so before we sign off here, hit us with a uh, fan shout out. Ryan Grossman, Laced Sports on Twitter, uh, went back and forth with him with some Jays banter at one point this season. Uh, Wolfon and I very much all in on this 2021 Toronto Blue Jays team, but uh Anyway, yeah, Ryan and I were going back and forth, and I can't remember what, uh, after one of the many heartbreaking losses the Jays have suffered this year, and he then randomly replied that, uh, by the way, he's been a fan of our pod since day one, <laughs> joked that he's listening from far away Toronto, uh, and says, we are one of four NBA podcasts that he absolutely cannot miss, and I will not name the other three. So thank you, Ryan, uh, for your support from day one. We do appreciate it. And uh, now that we're back... The usual call-out. New season. Same love for our supporters. Find us on Twitter, at Joseph Cacharo, at Joey underscore W. That's right. And uh, find myself on Instagram. It's just my name, Joseph Cacharo. It's Joe underscore 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 cash. You can see a lot of people just like send me a DM uh, and, and mention the show. So yeah, find me on Instagram. Find us on Twitter. Honestly, if you prefer it, Email us, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com, joe.wolfon at thescore.com. 
Let us know what you think of the show, how long you've been a fan, where you're listening from, and we promise to get you a shout-out on a future show. New season. We need a new batch of shout-outs. Get them in. That's all I got. And also, if anyone out there has any takes on the upcoming Sopranos prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. baby. Feel free to write in with those as well. Uh, Cash and I now have a, a tentative standing date to make our triumphant return to the cinemas. We haven't been in two years. We're going back to the theaters to watch the David Chase picture. We're super excited about that. So if you have any thoughts on that, just an explosive trailer, honestly, that got me so hyped. Yeah, send us your thoughts on The Many Saints of Newark. When, when that Sopranos theme hits at the end of that trailer, chills. Even more so than when Ray Liotta shows up. Yeah. All right, with that, we will put a bow on our first pod back in a while. Our first pod, I guess, of uh, you know the 2021-22 season. And in the coming weeks, we're going to start to ramp up with the preview content as, uh, as the season fast approaches. We're about six weeks out. It will be here before we know it. And in the meantime, you know, we're going to enjoy what's left of the offseason. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Yeah.